Lord, as we begin our Advent journey, we pray that you will be with us to show us so that we might see Jesus from beginning to end, the Alpha and the Omega. In his name we pray. Amen. Today's scripture reading is very short. In fact, it is but one verse long. It's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And this verse says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Those of you raised like me, and probably the old King James may say, well, there's a word that's a subtle change in there. We never did it with offspring, but you heard the word seed. I will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and hers. This is the very first promise given after Adam and Eve ate that forgiven fruit, or the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. This also is the very first gospel sermon ever preached. Theologians and seminarians call this the Proto-Evangelium. Great Greek word, Proto-Evangelium, which just very simply means the first gospel, or the first good words. These words spoken by God contain that very first promise of redemption ever mentioned in the Bible. And I would tell you that everything else in the Bible flows from those few words. It's kind of like as the acorn, those little things I know they just cover our driveway, they just kind of crunch every time we drive in. Those little itty-bitty acorns, out of those little itty-bitty acorns flows the mighty oak. So these words contain the entire plan of salvation. And though you may not see it at first glance, Jesus is also in this verse. Jesus is the ultimate seed of the woman who would one day come to crush the serpent's ugly head. And in the process, his heel, Jesus' heel, would be bruised on the cross. And in short, this verse predicts that Jesus was going to win the victory over Satan, but he would also be wounded at the same time. Now, these words would be fulfilled nearly 4,000 years later at a place called Calvary outside the city walls of Jerusalem. But all of that was in the future when God first spoke these words. So neither Adam nor Eve could have fully known what these words would have one day meant. Now this morning we're going to begin a Christmas series for 2012. I'm calling it Old Testament Jesus. I wanted to call it Christ B.C., but I don't know, for some reason Old Testament Jesus sounded better. And that title may seem like a little contradiction, I mean, how can we speak of Jesus before Jesus? Well, we can if we realize that as the second person of the Trinity, being fully God in all aspects, existed long before his entry into this world in Bethlehem. Jesus, the man who came into being with his conception in Mary's womb, but the Son of God, existed in all eternity. That's what the Lord meant. One time when he said in John chapter 8, before Abraham was born, I am. He was claiming eternal existence all the way from the beginning with his father. 
Now, there are a lot of people who say the message of salvation is not in the Old Testament. We don't need to worry about that bunch of dusty old books. We don't need to worry about it because all we need to do is be Jesus people. We need to be New Testament people. But I'm here today to tell you, friends, if you don't know the Old Testament, you don't know the biblical Jesus. You don't really know why he came. You've got to have it to connect to the New Testament. We shouldn't be surprised to encounter Jesus in the Old Testament. Sometimes, did you know Jesus actually appeared in what appeared to be human form in the Old Testament? Anytime you ever see those words, the angel of the Lord appeared, like the angel of the Lord came to Abraham and Sarah, uh, the, the Hebrew words are Malach Yahweh. It's the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in Old Testament times. Indeed, the Old Testament is full of signs and symbols and prophecies. There are well over 330-some prophecies of the coming of Christ. And so during these next couple of weeks, we're going to look at four major Old Testament prophecies. Today we're going to look at Seed of the Woman, Genesis 3. And in, in next week, we're going to look at the Lamb of God. And then we're going to look at a prophet like Moses. And we're going to end up with uh, a born of a virgin. Now, I've chosen these because they they represent the central truths that help us understand who Jesus is and why his coming is so very important. And so I'm praying that these messages will prepare your heart for Christmas and will increase your devotion to Jesus, the prophesied Son of God. Now, because this verse is so important, this little verse is so important in the history of redemption, we need to understand a few things. In fact, I think on your outline it, it talks about understand something about its context. I mean, Scripture lives within other parts of Scripture. And so we need to understand these things that you see up there, the context. Uh, we need to talk about um, time. Because this little prophecy takes place near the beginning of human history. It took place in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had just eaten of that forbidden fruit in the Garden. Their first impulse, if you remember, was to hide from God. Their second impulse was to blame it on each other, make excuses. Um, Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the snake. No one is willing to... Uh, step up and say, yeah, I did it, my fault, my responsibility. Now, suddenly when that happens, paradise, the Garden of Eden, is not nearly as beautiful as it was when God said, this is very good. The smell of death is suddenly in the air. The only person happy in the Garden of Eden is the snake. Because this was his plan from the beginning, to humiliate God. He has now shown, he thinks, that God's great experiment would not work. That no race of human beings could ever be trusted to freely obey God. I mean, left to themselves, he said, they're always going to disobey, even in paradise. And I can almost picture God stepping back and surveying the moral wreckage that day. And he immediately begins to pass sentence on the persons involved. He begins where sin begins with the serpent, with the snake. Then he moves on to the woman, and then he moves on to the man, 
But he does speak to that snake first. And although you may not realize it at first glance when you look at Genesis 3.15, this verse is not really directed at you and me, though it applies to us. See, God is the speaker, and the serpent is the one that's being spoken to you. And in two very short little verses, God passes judgment on whatever you want to call it, the serpent, snake, or Satan for his part in the fall of humanity. First, it says he is going to be cursed above every other animal. I still don't understand how people play with snakes. I think they're ugly little hideous creatures. I wouldn't touch them on a bet. I think they're some of the most cursed animals on the face of this earth. Second of all, it says the snake is going to crawl on his belly forever. And third, he's going to eat dirt. Well, dust all the days of his life. That's the judgment. The bad news for the serpent is that there is no good news. You ever think about that? The bad news is that there's no good news. God doesn't ask him, come on, Satan, why'd you do that? You know, because, why, because he'd already judged Satan when he threw him out of heaven. There are no extenuating circumstances. There are no motions to file in a higher court. Uh, there are no high-priced lawyers that are going to be involved in this case to argue, argue on behalf of the snake. And even though verse 15 contains the very first mention of the gospel, there is no ray of hope whatsoever for Satan because he is forever excluded from God's plan of salvation. It's only a curse. It's only a public judgment. And yet, when you think about it, in some ways, this was really Satan's finest moment. When he deceived Eve and Adam chose to follow her, he wrecked God's initial plan and gained the whole world for himself. And for a few short hours, Satan had won the great battle with God, but everything since has all been downhill for him. And as they say, downhill and picking up speed on the way to judgment. Now, with that understanding of the context, we've got to go back to Genesis 3.15. And let's ask this question. What does all of this predict? And we're going to summarize this this morning with three short phrases. And here's phrase number one. There will always be endless conflict. There will always be endless conflict. That's what it said. I will put enmity. We don't use that word very often today. We will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her. The key word enmity, it means hostility. It means animosity. It means feud. It means war. But God now is taking responsibility for this state of affairs. Now, there are three sub-points to this, and first of all, Eve and the serpent are never, ever going to get along. I mean, if the serpent thought that by deceiving Eve, he now had an ally, or he had somebody in his hip pocket, he was dead wrong. Eve made a huge mistake, but Eve never joined the Snakes fan club. Every woman, every woman dreams of living in paradise. But now that Eve has been cast out every hard day for a woman, 
ought to remind her to hate the serpent. The, set, the deeper meaning lies in the, the word that the NIV translates as offspring. In the Hebrew, the word is actually seed. Seed. It refers to the generations that are yet unborn that would trace their heritage all the way back to Eve. And that seed refers to the great men and women of faith and every generation who have ever believed in God. If that godly line goes from Adam to Abel to you know, Enoch who walked with God and was no more for God took him to Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and it eventually ends up with Jesus the Christ. But Satan has his seed too. Throughout history in every generation, every country, every village, every tribe, every clan, every family, and yes, even in every church, Satan has his people. That line started way back with Cain, who killed Abel. And it goes to the wicked generation of Noah's day, and to the pharaohs who opposed Moses, and the Canaanites who mocked Joshua. It includes Goliath, who laughed not only at David, but laughed at David's God. It's the same person who hated the prophets and murdered them. It was the ungodly line of Satan. And then we get all the way up to the days of Jesus. When Jesus was born, Herod tried to kill him. When he grew up, the Pharisees opposed him and plotted to kill him. I mean, Satan even infiltrated his inner circle with filling the heart of Judas with even more evil. When he was arrested, there were a whole bunch of people who stood up who were more than willing to lie about Jesus. And when Pilate offered to release him, a bloodthirsty crowd said, what? Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Bible commentator Matthew Henry wrote this. He said, it was the devil that put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. Peter to deny him. The chief priests to prosecute him. The false witnesses to accuse him. And Pilate to condemn him. Aiming at destroying the Savior to ruin salvation. Who was behind the crucifixion of Jesus. It was the ungodly line. It was that ungodly seed of Satan. That's really what we call the conflict of the ages. The struggle between those who believe in God, who are of that seed from Eve, and those who oppose it, the seed of Satan. And beginning with Genesis 3.15, there is now a fundamental division in the human race. And I'm one of those that sometimes thinks that division is getting even bigger, day by day. The big divide between those who trust in Jesus the Christ as their Savior and those who are just as willing to mock him and say terrible things about him. In John chapter 8, 15, it says, If the world hates me, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of this world. That is why this world hates you. I can remember being in a meeting one time, and people were talking about some pretty pretty nasty things. And I said, you know, I, I just want to take the opportunity to disagree. And it was like, and who are you? And I, when I, 
the first word that slipped out of my mouth was pastor, uh, to which the reply almost came back, well, that's what we'd expect from someone like you. Yeah. You know, Jesus never promised that people wouldn't criticize you. He told us not to worry about it. I mean, being hated by the world is just part of this continual conflict that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Now, here's the second phrase. There will be temporary defeat. Temporary defeat. It says, you will strike his heel. How many of you have ever had a bone spur? Anybody here? Okay, I have. I had one that broke in my heel. How many of you have ever pulled or torn your Achilles tendon? Okay, I have. I had a, a broken spur in my heel and tore part of my Achilles a number of years ago. You know how painful that is. You end up on crutches. You end up hobbling around. You end up taking painkillers. And you end up having surgery. I mean, heel problems slow you down, but it doesn't necessarily kill you. Now, when our text says he will strike his heel, it's got kind of a twofold reference. First of all, it refers to the fact that in this life, sometimes Satan wins this battle. Satan's got, he's got so many tools in his arsenal, and he's firing them away at God's people 24 hours a day. And sometimes we get wounded. We get wounded by discouragement. We get wounded by criticism. We get wounded by anger. We get wounded by bitterness or plans go astray or life doesn't work out the way we thought it would work out. And sometimes we're frustrated in spite of our very best efforts. And if you want proof that Satan wins a temporary victory, one only needs to attend a funeral or visit the cemetery. Every grave points to his infernal power. So this text, Genesis 3.15, reminds us that this life, this Christian life, is not a bed of roses. Not only is it continual conflict, but the bad guys actually win a few battles along the way. Anybody been discouraged in the last month or two? Satan won a battle that day, didn't he, when he got you to do that? There's a second meaning, however, here. When Jesus died on the cross, Satan struck his heel. I don't know if you know much about crucifixion, but do you know where the nails were pounded in? You know, we always say, you know, through the hands. No, they were pounded in through the wrists and through the heels. On Friday night, when they took the dead body of Jesus down from the cross, it appeared that Satan had won the battle. But on Sunday morning, the true victor walked out of the grave alive from the dead. Now, Satan had delivered a horrible, terrible blow on Good Friday. And no doubt, he thought he had thrown a knockout punch. But all he did was strike Jesus on the heel. And as painful as that was, that suffering was nothing compared to what Jesus did to Satan. As my friend Harry Wendt puts it, when Jesus was crucified, it was Satan that got nailed. This is kind of an aside, but I had that up on our marquee a year ago. Vicki will remember this, that when Jesus died, it was Satan who got nailed. 
It's the only negative comment I can ever remember getting from somebody who drove by who was offended that on the church sign we would have the word Satan because she does not allow her children to see that word. Now she had to drive a different direction to get to the school. This is terrible. But we changed that sign. The next one says, God's not looking for religious nuts, but spiritual fruit. I don't know that those have anything to do with each other. Phrase three, the phrase that pays. There is eventual victory. It says, he'll crush your head, you'll strike his heel. If you compare those two phrases, what? First, it's heel versus head. And then it's striking versus crushing. When Jesus died on the cross, he delivered a crushing blow to Satan. Now, who do you think won that battle? I mean, heel wounds are painful, but they don't kill you. I don't know that anybody has ever survived a crushed head. And the cross was God's death blow against Satan. It was payback for everything that took place in Eden. And besides, when Jesus died and rose from the grave, he utterly defeated Satan once and for all. Phillips Brooks, who's written a number of hymns in our hymnal, wrote, If Satan had been crushed, why does he still seem to be doing so well 2,000 years later? We know he's alive and well and living on planet Earth. How can a defeated being crushed by Jesus exercise so much power? The answer is that at the cross, Satan was judged and his sentence pronounced. However, he's now free to roam the Earth awaiting his final execution. This explains why Satan's power will grow even greater in the last days, but in the end, he and all who follow him will be destroyed. Well, those are three phrases. We need to answer one more thing, and that is how all of this applies to us today. How does all of this apply to us today? Well, here it is, the very first one. The Christian life will always be a struggle. We just need to understand that struggle implies effort. Sweat, difficulty. That's why Paul uses great examples of a runner and a boxer and a wrestler and a soldier. The Christian life is never easy. I'm always amazed when people come up and they say, Man, you know, I finally came to Jesus. I came to the church. I got myself baptized. I got back in. I thought everything was going to be easy. Folks, it's never easy. It's hard work. Being a disciple involves full-time Commitment. It's 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It's the full engagement of your soul. And whenever that's not fully engaged, guess what? You start losing battles. And until the day you die, you will struggle against temptation. Sometimes you're going to win. Sometimes you're going to lose. I got news for you. We're at war. We're at war. Life is hard. Times are difficult. And the enemy is attacking us on every last side. And every person on this earth, everybody who is here today is going to face temptation with his or her battles or his or her demons, whatever you want to call them. Now, salvation is free, but no one gets a free ride to heaven. So just understand, the Christian life will always be a struggle. But here's the second thing. Our victories will not come without wounds. See, it pleased the Lord to bruise his own son. And if that is so, how shall we escape the wounds of this life? 
See, if Jesus suffered for doing the will of God, so will we. At the cross, Satan struck a blow, wounded Jesus the Christ, and he is healed. And even after his resurrection, Jesus' body still bore the marks of his suffering. The wounds in his hands and feet and in his side. And the same is going to be true for us. We struggle in this life, and in struggling, we are going to get wounded from time to time. But I'm just telling you, friends, do not despair as you struggle. Be thankful and just struggle on. If you feel like running away from your struggles, remember there's nowhere to run. If you leave the battlefield today, you're going to just wake up and find yourself on another battlefield somewhere else tomorrow. So you might as well stand up and fight. Or one of my favorite Christian songs, Get on your knees and fight like a man. I like that one. Get on your knees and fight like a man. And there's a third way this applies to us. This is that God's plan of salvation is wrapped up in a person. Genesis 3.15 is the very first mention of the gospel in the Bible. Now you might have missed it, like I said before, because Jesus is not in that verse. But he's in there nonetheless. Jesus, the seed of this woman, is the one who would one day make his triumphant entry into this world in the most unlikely fashion. You know, and as centuries have rolled by, Satan keeps winning victories. But what does God do? God keeps raising up people who continue the godly line here on this earth. And, and I'd like to think of this verse as kind of like the top of a very wide funnel. When the promise was given, no one could have imagined the coming of Jesus. The seed of this woman simply meant, meant that he was going to be a member of this human race. But after the flood, this was kind of narrowed down to Noah's descendants, and later to rest on just one man, Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, and then on to Isaac, and then on to his son, Jacob, and Jacob's son, Joseph, and Joseph's sons Judah, and centuries later it narrows down to the house of David, and nine centuries after that it narrows down to Jesus, the firstborn son of Mary. And what started with the whole human race, way back then, narrowed down to just one man. Now, he didn't come in the usual way. He came by way of a virgin birth. No one before, nobody since has ever entered the world in that way. So he is truly the seed of the woman, since no man was involved in the conception of Jesus. I always think about, you know, when, when God wanted to save the world, he didn't elect people to a leadership board. When God wanted to save the world, he didn't send a committee. He sent his son. When God wanted to say, I loved you, he wrapped his love note in swaddling clothes. When God wanted to crush Satan, he started in a stable in Bethlehem. We're going to sing some Christmas songs when it gets to Christmas. You might be interested in knowing that when John Wesley wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, he actually had a verse based on Genesis 3.15. But for some strange reason, hymnals often omit this verse, which is unfortunate because it includes some excellent theology. In fact, I think I got the words up on the screen. I wonder if we could sing that. 
Wynn's going to look real quick for heart. While you're doing it, I'm just going to read it to you one time. We're going to sing it. It's to the tune of Hark the Herald Angels. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's lifeless, lifeless now effaced, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. You got the music up there? Let's sing that verse. Let's sing that verse.